Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So this morning, um, I brought in one of the hottest pieces of technology in the world right now. And uh, I put it in, I stashed it in here just so I could show everybody. I have here a Nikon Coolpix digital camera. Um, I'm pretty sure that this is 20 years old. Um, and I heard about this because there was a report this week from the New York Times all about this camera. The New York Times was pointing out that there is a, a rush right now on people buying these cameras. And the people that are buying these cameras are Generation Z. They're buying these cameras because the newest craze on social media is to take pictures with a old one megapixel Nikon Coolpix camera and then put it on an SD card, upload, find a computer that can read an SD card, upload that picture to the computer, then send it to yourself on your phone so that you can then upload it to Instagram or TikTok. It's wild. I have no idea what's going on with it. And neither did the reporters in this New York Times article. They are older people like me, not understanding the trends that were going on. And so they brought on a reporter who had just joined the staff at the Times, fresh out of college and internships. And they asked her, her name's uh, Kaylee Hong. They asked her, why? Why is this happening? Why are people, why are teenagers and young adults trying to find these picture, these cameras? I mean, when they, when I read this report, I looked at like, you know, the, I don't know if everybody has this, like the junk technology drawer, you know, like the stuff that you can't bring yourself to throw away, like say a 20 year old camera, but you also like, you know, don't use. So it just, you just throw it in that one bin. For me, it's a drawer and you just throw it all in there. I was like, oh, I think I've got one of those. And so they ask, why is this happening? Why why has this ancient camera become the hottest thing out there? And the young reporter thought about it for a minute. And she sort of mused about, you know, the quality of the pictures, which is not good. And she landed on a fascinating answer. Here's what she said. In a world where you can pay $40 a year to have every single one of your pictures modified by artificial intelligence to look cooler... What's better than a purposeful downgrade in a photo? One that is blurry and has poor lighting. She went on to say, and this is the really kind of profound part, in a way, this trend is a sort of performative authenticity where you give the appearance of keeping things real and authentic, but it's still specifically curated to show the parts of your life that you want others to see. Because you think about it, you're still choosing which photos you're going to upload. You're still picking and choosing what other people see. So it looks authentic. Oh, yes, I took this with my parents' camera. But it's just performative. That's what stuck with me, performative authenticity. We've reached a point in curating our digital selves where we have to pretend to be real by using old technology to capture the moment. 
in many ways we are completely through the looking glass. But that phrase performative authenticity is really uh, what the false teachers of Galatia were accusing Paul of. They said he didn't actually know the true Christian message. He was just pretending. He's teaching a watered-down, one-megapixel version of Christianity. They said that it was a, a mistranslation of what all of the other apostles taught. Paul's message, it's, it's not as good as Peter's. Paul's message, it's not as good as James and the other disciples, but that simply wasn't true. And so the passage that we're going to look at today, the passage that we're going to read today is all about Paul showing how he came to know the gospel, and not only how he came to know the gospel, how it lined up with Peter and the other churches in Jerusalem. For Paul, the reality of the gospel was greater than we can imagine. It's too good to be a creation of man. The gospel offers us a change that is too radical to be from anything on this earth, and its message is too powerful to just be from people. And so Paul believes it and encourages the Galatians and us to believe this good news, which is greater than we can imagine. And I want to invite you into that story this morning. So if you're able, I would invite you to stand as I read Galatians 11, or 1, 11 through 24. The words will be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along as I read. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely jealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions in Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Before Paul gets to the heart of his letter, he has to deal with something. He has to deal with the fact that it's not just his message that is being attacked, but it's his character and authority. It's who he is as an apostle. These people have come into Galatia and they're saying that it's not enough to simply believe in Jesus. It's not enough to simply believe what the news that Paul was telling them taught. And so before Paul even gets going with explaining what the gospel means for our lives, he has to stop and defend himself against these attacks. Paul has to defend his experience with the risen Messiah and how he came 
to believe it. You see, Paul is a unique case. He's unlike any of the other apostles. He did not follow Jesus while Jesus was alive. In fact, Paul didn't encounter Jesus until after the resurrection. And so Paul is unique and different than every single one of the other apostles. Before he was the writer that we know, before he was the one who was the missionary to all these different places, Paul was known as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus first shows up in the Bible uh, at the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, was arrested for preaching in the temple in Jerusalem. And there, as the Jewish leaders killed Stephen, something unique was mentioned, that there was somebody there who was holding their coats, kind of taking care of their luggage as they killed Stephen. And that person was Saul of Tarsus. And the next time Saul of Tarsus shows up, he is persecuting the church in Judea. He is going around imprisoning and intimidating people so that they don't believe in the gospel message. So they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And not only that, not only was he persecuting the church in Judea, he had gotten paperwork. He had got all of his papers in order so that he might go to um, Damascus, that he might go up north and then he might go there and persecute folks there as well. Well, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, if you're familiar with the story of Paul, you know what happens next. As Saul is on his way to Damascus, God reveals Jesus to him. He is immediately and dramatically converted from a murdering, persecuting Pharisee to a follower of Jesus. And just like so many characters of the Old Testament, this experience with God is so significant that it causes him to change his name. You might remember that Abraham was originally called Abram. Or you might remember that Israel's first name was Jacob. In the same way, Saul became Paul. He had a miraculous and dramatic conversion. So when Paul begins to defend himself as an apostle, somebody who is sent by Jesus, he starts by saying, I did not learn this from anyone else. I learned this from Jesus himself. The resurrected Jesus was revealed to me. He is the one who preached the gospel to me, right from Jesus himself. And so that's completely different from all of the other second generation of Christians, all of the ones that heard the message of Peter, that heard the message of James, that heard the message of Thomas. All of those folks didn't hear it directly from Jesus, but Paul did. Paul heard Jesus' good news that he has loved us and given himself for us to deliver us from this present age, as he said earlier in the chapter. He has seen Jesus face to faith. He, he has heard the gospel from the mouth of our Lord himself. He wasn't a faker. He wasn't an interloper. He wasn't a pretender. He wasn't performing some sort of fake authenticity. No, Paul was the real deal. And Paul reminds the Galatians that he doesn't have some secondhand knowledge. This isn't some great value brand gospel that he's kind of getting wrong. No, he heard it from Jesus himself. The gospel was too good to be made up. And that's what Paul believes. The idea that a persecutor of the church could become a missionary is not a story that many of us would make up. That's not a story that we would come up with. That power can only come from heaven, which Paul says is exactly what 
happened, but he doesn't stop the story there. He begins to unfold the rest of his biography, unfold everything else that is going on. He shows how the gospel changed him in a way that was so dramatically different than any earthly story ever could be. He reminds them of his past. He says that he was not a nice guy. He wasn't a nice guy who added Jesus to his life, and then he was a slightly nicer guy. No, he was a violent, persecuting zealot. And that idea of zeal or being a zealot, in our culture, if you call somebody a zealot, you know, that's a shot. That's a, you know, that's not a nice thing typically to call somebody. But in the first century in Judaism, zealot was kind of a badge of honor. It meant that you were absolutely sold out to the tradition of Judaism. You were concerned, you were really concerned with the purity of the people of Israel and the purity of the land of Israel. And so they sort of saw themselves as heirs to people like the Maccabee brothers, the Maccabee brothers who who chased the Greeks out of um, Israel. That's the story of Hanukkah. They saw themselves as Elijah killing the prophets of Baal, of, of Phineas running his spear through the Hebrew man and the Moabite mistress. They sort of saw themselves in that way, which if you think about all those stories, the one thing that they all have in common is, is violence. Because zealotry in the day of Paul, just like it is today in many cases, is the toxic combination of serious prayer and serious violence. Paul came to realize how utterly and completely wrong he was in that zeal. He was climbing the ladder. He was, he was growing in power and status, inching closer and closer to a seat on the Sanhedrin. He was advancing beyond all of the other people that were close to his age. And something happened for him to drop all of that to drop that drive for power, to drop that drive for violence, to drop that zealotry. Something radically altered the course of his life. Being extreme is a kind of shortcut to power and notoriety then as it is now. But when Paul met Jesus, when Paul saw Jesus face to face, he went from somebody who was killing the church in Judea to someone who made it his life's work that Gentiles might come to be a part of the family of God, to see the blessings of Jesus spread to the ends of the earth. That is a power and a change too radical to come from any sort of human effort. Paul was really and truly changed by a miraculous act of God. And that's the same thing that is true for us this sort of radical change that causes us to give everything up and follow Jesus is the sort of thing that cannot come from man. I'm reminded this weekend um, of a young African-American minister during the civil rights movement. No, I'm not talking about Dr. King, uh, though there are echoes of his story here. This week, I I read the story of Benjamin Chavez. And Benjamin Chavez was a young man who worked with the United Church of Christ. He was an African-American man from North Carolina. And when the city of Wilmington was having trouble with their schools being integrated, uh, the United Church of Christ asked um, this young man, Chavez, to uh, Benjamin Chavez, to go to Wilmington to organize the students in nonviolence. He had been a part of Dr. King's School of Nonviolent Resistance, and so he was sent there. 
And in February of 1971, he was leading a meeting of mostly college students with some, a few high schoolers at Gregory Congregational Church when uh, just a few uh, spots away there on the street, a place called Mike's Grocery Store was burned down. Chavez and eight of the African-American students, as well as uh, a white civil rights worker, were arrested and charged for arson for that building. They became known as the Wilmington Ten, and in fact, Chavez was um, sentenced to 34 years in prison, despite the fact that by the time the trial came, there were no witnesses who hadn't recanted their testimony. And yet, all 10 of them were put in jail. Chavez served for years uh, until the trial was overturned, and all 10 of them were pardoned. They became known as the Wilmington Ten. And after that, after that experience, you would think that this young minister, who had just barely started seminary at that point, would give up, that he would just walk away, that he would be bitter and angry. But upon release, he enrolled in Duke Seminary and continued to be a civil rights leader uh, as a minister. He had experienced a change that changed his perspective on the world around him. The same way Paul had experienced a change that affected the way he saw the world around him. Beloved, the beauty of the gospel is that radical sort of change is offered to us as well. A way to be delivered from this present evil age. Now listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. The gospel does not make all of your problems go away. It doesn't wave away temptation with the magic wand and we only do nice things for the rest of our lives. No, but the gospel does break the power of sin in our lives. The gospel does break the cycle and the despair that sin throws us into. The same good news that Paul believed that changed the heart of a murderous Pharisee, the heart of someone who enslaved, who was enslaved to people-pleasing through law-keeping is the same good news that you and I believe. And Paul had experienced it firsthand. He had experienced it when he met Jesus. He didn't have a, a watered down telephone game. You remember telephone game when you were like in elementary school where you sort of stood in a circle and you passed it around and, you know, what started out as Belgian waffles became, you know, I don't know, Leslie Nope by the time it got around to the other side or whatever sort of crazy transformation happened in that time. That's not what Paul had. He didn't have a telephone version of the gospel. In fact, he, he shows how real his gospel was by what happened after he was converted. He didn't immediately run down to Jerusalem and tell the apostles, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm, we're cool now. Um, I'm not going to kill you anymore. So that's nice. You're welcome. No, in fact... It says that Paul didn't go back to Jerusalem. He went to Arabia. And the only time that Paul uses the word Arabia besides this time right here is when he is referring to Mount Sinai. So by all accounts, it seems that Paul, immediately after his conversion, went to the place where the law was given. Now, now, now think about that. Paul is a Pharisee. He's a lawyer. He has studied in the law of the Old Testament. And then he realizes that the Messiah has come. Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus has rose from the dead. He goes to the place where it all started to Mount Sinai to realign what it is he believes with what he knew of the Old Testament. 
one of the fascinating things, and we'll see this again next week, about Paul is because the way that you and I read Acts, we get the wrong impression of sort of the timeline of Paul's life. Because Paul's converted in Acts chapter 9, and it's just a few chapters later in chapter 13 when he's sent out on his missionary journey. In our minds, maybe there's a time lapse of a month, six months, I mean, maybe on the outside a year. But from Galatians, we can see that the time between Paul's conversion and Paul being sent out as a missionary is 17 years. Paul had to sit, Paul had to wait, Paul had to be with Jesus. Before he could do business for God, he needed to do business with God. And the same thing is true for us. God wants our work for him to always be secondary and driven by our intimacy with him. It's our contemplation of the good news that pushes us out into mission. Anytime we try to do something in the name of Jesus and it is disconnected from love and intimacy and time spent with Jesus, we are in trouble. God cares far more about our contemplation and our meditation than he does with our accomplishments, even in his name. So after three years, Paul does go to Jerusalem and he meets with Peter and they only meet together for, for 15 days. They get to know one another. In fact, the, the language that Paul uses here is that they treated one another as equals and compared notes. What, what, tell me more about Jesus. When he, what, what's, what was he like? And so Peter would tell Paul what he was like probably. And, and Peter would get to hear what things Paul had discovered as he thought about Jesus and the Old Testament. They were equals. And while he was there, he also met James, Jesus' brother. And he mentions this because he wants us to see and he wants the Galatian church to see that while his teaching didn't come from the apostles, it was in line with the apostles. So when Paul returns to Antioch, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and he goes back to the areas that we today call Lebanon and Syria, it wasn't out of line with what the apostles teaching. It wasn't something different than the churches in Judea were teaching. In fact, we see Jesus bringing this full circle. The very churches that Paul had persecuted, the churches in Judea, the very churches where Paul had imprisoned pastors like James himself are now the churches that are giving glory to God to what, for what God has done in the life of Paul. The persecutor has become the preacher. The one who used to take the lives of God's faithful is now faithfully laying down his life and ambition so that the Gentiles might be a part of the family of God. Paul's life and message were one of radical change and radical reconciliation. Beloved, I, I know that you have so many things pulling on your attention. I know that because so do I. But the resurrected Jesus, who Paul met on the road to Damascus, is the same Jesus that we believe in. The same Holy Spirit who radically changed Paul's life is the same Holy Spirit that's at work in us. The same way that Paul had been adopted and truly accepted by the Father is the same way that we have truly been adopted and accepted by the Father. We can say and pray as Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father. Beloved, let's trust in the good news that Jesus has given himself for us and is delivering us from this present age. It may not go at the speed that you want it to. It does not go at the speed that I want it to. But not one part of our lives is wasted. Even in his extreme and misguided life as a Pharisee, that prepared Paul 
to be the one that has mined the depths of the Old Testament and brought out the richness and beauty of Christ from its pages to us. Made him all the more ready to preach the good news that all of the zealotry and good works in the world do not get you any closer to heaven. All of the law keeping you can muster do not change the way that God sees you. Because if anybody could have made the grade, it would have been Paul. And Paul came to realize that those works were absolutely bankrupt. Only the saving work of Jesus can change us. Only faith clinging completely to Jesus can justify our hearts in the presence of God. So, so let's dwell on that. Let's, let's share our stories and see our stories through that lens. We don't have to perform our authenticity with vintage cameras. We can live exactly how God has made us to be, exactly who our stories has formed us into. And as we do, we can see God changing us into where he is calling us to. It happened for Paul, and it's happening now in our midst. Ask somebody this week. Ask somebody what they see God doing in their lives. Share somebody, share with somebody what you see God doing in yours. It should have the same effect that Paul's story had on the church in Judea. People will glorify God because of it. Let's pray.